Um, welcome, good to be together, uh, church. Um, my name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Greeley. We're getting back into our sermon series in the book of Acts, Thy Kingdom Come. Um, if you have not been here over the last couple weeks, um, I would encourage you to go online and find uh, the last couple sermons. Uh, Dustin opened up two weeks ago. Thank you, brother. Um, if you were not here um, to get the tail end of Acts chapter 24, I would highly encourage you to go listen to that sermon. I know that you will be um, served by it. And then last week, we took a small break from Acts and we jumped into Ephesians chapter 3 as David was here from Windsor Community Church and did a great job opening the Word and petitioning our own hearts and minds before the reality of missions and God's call of missions for all people in all places of all times, right? And so just the reality of that. So trust you will be served by um, both of those two sermons. This morning we are in Acts, specifically Acts chapter 25. At least that's where we will start as our task is to work through Acts chapter 25 and 26 this morning as we come to the end of our journey in the book of Acts, um, specifically the beginning of Paul's journey towards Rome. And the title for this morning's sermon is simply that, The Road to Rome, Looking Ahead and Looking Behind. The Road to Rome, Looking Ahead and Behind. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open with me to Acts chapter 25, and as you get there, we're going to follow a little different format today as we cover a lot of text. So we're going we're gonna to read several verses, we're going to pause, we're going to uh, talk a little bit about that, make some observation, and then we're going to take another bite-sized chunk, and then, Lord willing, when we are done through Acts chapter 25 and 26, we will try to get our arms wrapped around all of those pieces of this wonderful narrative account of what God is doing in the life of Paul and many others. So, if you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and uh, open to Acts chapter 25, starting in verse 1. We're going to read the first 12 verses, and then we will make some observations. Acts 25, verse 1. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the providence, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea and the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he be summoned, that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they are planning on ambushing to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept in Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So he said, Let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he had stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. 
To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I, if then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had confirmed with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Acts chapter 24 ends with the trial of Paul before Felix. It's what Dustin walked us through two weeks ago. Acts chapter 24, verse 7, we're told that Felix is preceded by a man named Festus. Now, Festus is supposed to have replaced Felix as governor of the province of Palestine somewhere between A.D. 59 and A.D. 60. This timeline connects with what we're told about Paul's length of imprisonment up to this point in Acts chapter 24, which is about a two-year stint. Now, although the emperor Nero recalled Felix and replaced him with Festus, the political gainsmanship continued as Paul is continued to be used as a political tactic amongst the Jews. Verse 1 in chapter 25 tells us that soon after coming into the office, Festus goes down to Jerusalem, supposedly to exert and gain influence amongst the Jews that he now governs. And what do you know? The Jews, having the ear of their new governor, try their luck again at getting Paul killed. To Festus's credit, most likely having been educated on the history of the Jews and Paul from the Roman tribune there in Jerusalem, and probably not wishing to give away too much of his authority, Festus hears the request but tells the Jews that Paul is being held in Caesarea and that Festus himself is going there shortly. So why not come with me as I go and have the trial there? He's a decent politician. Days later, verse 6, we're told that Festus, as well as the men of authority of the Jews, travel to Caesarea, where on the next day, after they arrive, Festus sends for Paul and the trial begins. Like common day politics, the governing leadership is often burdened with their predecessor's decisions or lack thereof. This is the setting in which Paul enters. Having already been passed over by Felix, who for political gain desired to withhold judgment, but kept Paul in prison. Festus, new to the office, desiring for himself to gain favor in the eyes of the Jews and hoping in return to resolve some conflict and unrest, unknowingly, I would suggest, opens this can of worms, which is Paul's trial. Verse 7 tells us that the Jews bring forth many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. To which Paul argues in verse 8 that neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar himself has he committed any offense. Festus himself has no good response to the direct charges, 
the lack of evidence, or Paul's rebuttal. Instead, being politically motivated, he asks Paul if he desires to simply be sent away to Jerusalem and be tried there. Paul perceives the political headwinds before him, that Festus, unlike Felix, will not withhold judgment and just pass him to the Jews, arguing ignorance to the plan of the Jewish ambush to kill him removing Paul from being Festus's problem and in turn carry favor with the Jews. Paul claims that he's standing before Caesar's tribunal, which is where he ought to be charged, and he does not shrink back from any punishment that is rightly discerned, verse 11, but that he will not simply be handed over from the process of justice into the hands of wicked men. Seeing all of that play out, Paul appeals to a higher court, the court of Caesar, to make his defense. Verse 12, Festus confirms with his knowledgeable counsel, I believe seeing that Paul has outsmarted him and turned the tables, quite frankly, Festus is obligated to send this Roman citizen who has appealed to Caesar to to not stand in his way. And there it is. The way to Rome is paved for Paul. Politically minded opportunists desire to use Paul for their own gain, and by God's sovereign providence, who has orchestrated all of these events and countless others, positioned Paul to go to Rome because God called him to do so. So let's continue reading in verse 13. Now, when some days had passed, Agrippa, the king, and Bernice arrived in Caesarea and greeted Festus. And they stayed there many days. Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the law laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had an opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar." Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in, and Festus said, King Agrippa 
and all who are present with us, you see this man whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought no long, no ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. So Paul is bound to Rome. But before he goes, he has an opportunity to speak before another gathering of which includes King Agrippa II. King Agrippa is the great-grandson of Herod the Great. He was king over a neighboring providence northeast of the location of Caesarea, and although he has no ruling authority, Festus, a Gentile, positioned the ear of this Jewish king, King Agrippa, to give him counsel. Festus summarizes the account of Paul in verses 12 through 21. And after hearing this account, Agrippa desires to hear from Paul himself, and he asks to do so in verse 22. It's important to remember that this gathering had no formal weight to it, as Paul was already requested to stand before Caesar but served as a means by which Festus, a non-Jew, might better understand what to include in his words to Caesar concerning Paul, which is what he says in verse 26 and 27. So let's continue reading chapter 26, starting in verse 1. So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that is before you, King Agrippa. I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the custom and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to obtain as they earnestly worshipped night and day. And for this hope... I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priest, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. 
Paul's address before King Agrippa and his half-sister Bernice, Festus, and others was not a legal matter, as Paul had already appealed to appear before Caesar. However, Paul is ready and willing to share the good news of the gospel to anybody that will let him speak. And Paul shares his conversion experience in Acts three different times, right? Acts chapter 22, Acts chapter 24, and now again here in Acts chapter 26. Paul's own road to Rome is prepared and it's set. There is no further convincing that is necessary on his part, and yet he is willing, yet again, to recount the reasons for his imprisonment and the continued plight with the Jews that he faces. It is convicting to consider, as Paul gives evidence to the truth of the gospel, that Paul's greatest means to prove to King Agrippa that Jesus was the Christ was Paul's own conversion experience. Think about that with me for a moment. King Agrippa, unlike Festus, has deep Jewish heritage, and Paul points to this out in verse 3. He says that Agrippa is familiar with all the customs and the controversies of the Jews, and although there are places that Paul points to, their Jewish heritage, point towards Jesus as the promised hope, although Paul does that, Paul's primary proof to King Agrippa and to his audience that Jesus was the one who who was promised to come is the changed life of Paul. Verse 4 through 11 communicate that the man before meeting Jesus as the Christ was the persecutor of his people. He was known by all as opposing the way earnestly locking up many saints in prison, verse 10, casting his vote to have them killed and in raging fury persecuted and tried to entrap them in their words. This was the man that we know as Paul, held on trial because Paul claimed to have found the promised of God the things promised to their forefathers, verse 6, who proclaims that Jesus has been raised from the dead, verse 7, something that God could surely do, couldn't he? So how did that man that once persecuted the way become the one that is persecuted for it? Well, let's continue reading in verse 12. In this connection, Paul continues to speak, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Is it hard for you to kick against the goads? And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. 
But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. Delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of his sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision but declared first to those in Damascus and then to Jerusalem and through all of Judea and also to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but, the, but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. In this connection... Paul journeyed to Damascus. And we know this account well, running down the road of rebellion. The merciful Savior intervenes. Speaking in the Hebrew language, verse 14, a meaningful detail to King Agrippa as a Jew, Jesus, the risen Son, speaks directly to Paul. Calling him by his Jewish name, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you kicking against the goads? Goads were sharp, prodding sticks used by people to steer and control livestock, specifically oxen. And if the oxen misbehaved, the goads would be used more severely. So God's intent from before Paul's own birth, Galatians chapter 1, was to draw and guide him to this place to call, redeem, and direct Paul and commission Paul to God's eternal work. To be saved so that his people and the Gentiles might have their eyes opened so that they might turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they might receive forgiveness of sin and have a place among those who are sanctified in faith, verse 18. And what is the proof that Paul points to of the reality of all of this? It's a changed life. He says, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, verse 19. But I declared it first to those in Damascus and then into Jerusalem and Judea and then to the Gentiles, telling them to repent and believe that Jesus was the promised Messiah. That's the whole reason that Paul has been hated, seized, and tried to be killed because of the witness of the gospel, because of the impact of the gospel on his own life. 
So what does his audience have to say concerning all of this? Let's look back at verse 24. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And King Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I, except for these chains. Then the king arose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with him. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appeared, appealed to Caesar. Paul, you've gone a little crazy. You've gone out of your mind. All that studying that you've done, it's caused a screw to go just a little loose. That is Festus's conclusion after hearing such things. But Paul is not deterred, knowing that all of these events are foreign to Festus, but he appeals to Agrippa, verse 26. He says, you, king, know about these things, for they have not escaped your notice. And then he points to Agrippa specifically and he says, don't you believe in the prophets, great king? I know that you believe in them. Agrippa came to hear a great tale, not to be confronted with the truth. He's taken aback, quite frankly, by Paul's direct call to faith and therefore he skirts the issue. Ironically, claiming that this amount of time together is too short to become a Christian, praise God that that just isn't true. Paul pleads with him and everyone else in the audience that if it takes a long time or a short time, whatever amount of time, he wishes that they would come to saving faith like he has. The setting closes with Paul's audience leaving him, and I assume somewhat perplexed for Paul's plight, not understanding him, his words, his purpose, and above all, 
the motivation for appealing to Caesar. And so Paul is off to Rome. Why? Specifically because we know God sent him there. If we recall the words back in Acts chapter 23, verse 11, Jesus' words to Paul in a vision is to take courage, for you must testify to the facts. As you have in Jerusalem, so must you in Rome. It's also noteworthy that Paul's own call and purpose that's stated here in Acts chapter 26, verse 17, points to the reality of proclaiming the truth before the Gentiles. What more central place might he do that than Rome itself? So Paul is on the road to Rome. It's settled, and he's going. We've seen the trial before Festus resulting in Paul's appeal to go to Rome, and Paul's recount of his conversion experience before Agrippa. So what points of application are here for us this morning? As I think about Paul's current predicament, I'm struck by the striking similarity of Paul's journey and our own. Now please hear me. To my knowledge, most of us are not on trial waiting for long periods of time for resolution and justice. Praise God. To my knowledge, we aren't even looking ahead to the city of Rome where our calling might be fulfilled. You might not even have had a face-to-face meeting with King Jesus that you can point to for your changed life. But if you are here this morning as a follower of Jesus, if you've put your trust in the perfect work of Jesus on the cross as payment for your sin before God, where you are deserving punishment And because of faith, you now get righteousness in the face of God's only Son, Jesus. If you are here this morning and you've experienced Jesus' words of being transferred from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, where you have experienced forgiveness of sins and have a place among those who are sanctified by faith, if that is you, then let me have you consider along with me a few things that we share and can learn from the man named Paul on his road to Rome. For we're all travelers and sojourners along the road of life. We all live between the here and the now and where we are going. One commentator put it this way, we all live in the gap between the Genesis 2 world and the Revelations 21 world, stuck in the Genesis 3 world. Although our destination is not Rome, although it's a pretty cool place, we do await our appointed location. And it can, like Paul, take years and years to get there. It's often a bumpy road, quite frankly. 
filled with potholes, twists, and turn. Our journey is often not the kind of story we would have written for ourselves. Maybe you can feel like me at times that the road is already all too long. That it takes too long to see any progress. The successes take more time than they should to achieve and are all too short-lived when they come. The grind of the daily travel might just leave you astray. Astray from accomplishing your purpose in the midst of the journey. Like being caught up in a raging crowd that's pushing in an opposite direction, you can get pushed along and distracted from where you ought to be going. With lots of excitement, you can, if you're like me, Allow the passions of other travelers to draw my attention to wander down different forks in the road or set up camp along the path, all the while distracting me from getting to the Rome that God is calling me to go to. We are easily distracted people, are we not? Just a couple moments before we started the sermon, my eldest comes up to me and he says, hey, did you notice this balloon? And I just shrunk my head and I said, you know what? It took every part of my being not to be distracted by a silly balloon while we were trying to worship. The grind of daily travel can leave you, if you are like me, at times dull or even numb, causing you to forget or possibly not even care about who you are or where you ought to be headed. As a creature of habit, I know that I can find myself in this place working through good routines with a loss of passion for why I'm doing what I'm doing. Maybe you can relate to the feeling of numbness at times. Because the road of life is a marathon, it's definitely not a sprint. And it's full of great highs and very deep lows. Full of disappointments, unfair expectations, monotony, struggle, and alongside it all, there's bills to pay and things to do. Praise God that we aren't only similar to Paul in the fact that we travel along the road of life. But as believers in Christ, we can and arguably must look ahead with great hope for our sure and established destination. Trusting ourselves to God's calling and sustaining purpose for us. We can and we must, like Paul, look behind at the amazing gift of our conversion. 
and let it stir up great faith in the midst of our travel. When's the last time that you have remembered your own conversion experience? In our redemption group, we've taken the time over the last um, several weeks to allow people to share their story of God's amazing grace in their life. Maybe think about that now for a moment. How God in his great kindness drew you to himself. Called you his. Took you off the path of darkness and he placed you on the perfect road to your forever home. Fixed in heaven for you. Do you have people in your life who are helping you fix your gaze on the future hope to come? Practical question is, who do you surround yourself with? Those that are helping you do that or those that are distracting you from it? My prayer is that we would be a church traveling along the road, who daily help one another look ahead to future hope and look behind at the great story of salvation that if you know Jesus, we all have. So that those two things might propel us in the midst of the road that we travel on. And my prayer is that we would do that together. Amen? Amen. We're going to transition to communion. If you're uh, uh, reading along in uh, 2 Timothy with us, we just got uh, a couple days ago through one of my favorite phrases in the Bible, which comes right out of 2 Timothy chapter 7, uh, verse 6, excuse me, chapter 1, verse 6 which is to fan into flame. Fan into flame. I believe with all of my heart that God's, one of God's great gifts to us as his people is the sacrament of communion because God knew that we need to often remember and look ahead to the reality of what he has done in the face of Jesus. And that that would fan into flame. That is what we do when we celebrate communion. We look back upon the sacrificial, atoning death of Jesus. That God put forth Jesus as our sacrifice for our own sin. That he broke him in his body and in his blood that is represented by the bread and the juice Because we need to be people that remember. Often. And in just in the same way, Paul's words to 1 Corinthians, he says, as we do this, we proclaim the Lord's death until what? Until he returns. May we be people that look ahead and look behind as we journey down this road together. So we're going to take a couple moments. I just encourage you 
to spend some time of reflection. Alex is going to come on up. He's going to play kind of in the background. Go ahead and grab the elements, both the juice and the bread. There's gluten-free bread on that side that's labeled. Take those two elements. Go back to the, your seats. And then um, when it seems right, I'm going to come back up. And we will uh, be led through the Lord's Supper together as we fan into flame the reality of the hope, the eternal weight of glory of the gospel in our lives. Amen.